women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants to hear your voice. Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast celebrating the women of Princeton University who are doing exceptional and unusual things to make the world a better place. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and my guest today is Catherine Rihimaki. Catherine's main affiliation is with the Princeton Council on Science and Technology. She'll tell us more about that in a few minutes, uh, but the mission of the council is basically science education and science communications. Catherine is a geoscientist who mostly focuses on environmental issues and climate change. And in the spirit of full disclosure, she and I have recently teamed up to channel her expertise into a new podcast miniseries. It's called All for Earth. Catherine is the host, and you can find it on all the usual podcast platforms. Catherine, thanks for agreeing to sit in the interviewee seat today instead of the interviewer seat. I'm a little nervous, but I'm really happy to be here. (laughs) I'm sure you'll be fine. (laughs) I want to dive right into All for Earth, if I can. First, I think the obvious question is, can you just tell us uh, what it's about or summarize, since I actually do know what it's about, summarize what the podcast is about. Sure. Um, Our goal is to um, capture the voices of people who are mobilizing to address the most pressing environmental issues facing society today um, from a variety of different angles, Mm -hmm. Um, all with the point that, you know, what we're facing is very serious, but that we have the tools to actually address the problems if we get on it as Mm -hmm. soon as possible. Um, And so we have guests from business, from um, politics, from communication, uh, you know. Sports. And sports. And sports, yeah. And it grew out of some other thinking that you've been doing, other work that you've been doing. I wonder if you can kind of explain the frame of the podcast and and what its genesis was. Sure. Um, You know, there are a couple of different ways I can answer that. One is just the very pragmatic, Um, This is a coming together of three different groups on Princeton's campus. Um, The Princeton Environmental Institute, which is celebrating its 25th anniversary this fall um, with a two-day symposium late October. Um, Hope everyone comes October 24th and 25th. Um, And so they're interested in sort of celebrating what their um, staffing and alumni have done. Meanwhile, the university through the Office of Communications is interested in communicating out all of the things that Princeton, the Princeton community is doing in the world, um, and in this case around the environment. Um, and then my group, uh, the Council on Science and Technology, is really about promoting scientific literacy, or more generally, including technology, engineering, and math, STEM literacy, mm-hmm. education beyond the classroom, and what does it look like to try to help a STEM literate society through this different medium. Yeah. Well, if I can just stick with the the themes of the podcast for a second yeah. because we 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 do look at um, an an environmental nexus is one term one of our guests uses and i wonder if you can unwrap that a little bit what is this environmental nexus that uh, that you talk about on your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so our first podcast guest, Steve Bacala, is a professor here in ecology and evolutionary biology. And um, he and I worked together to develop this really um, exciting and innovative course called the Environmental Nexus, which is bringing together um, four huge environmental issues that intersect with each other. And so it's climate change, it's biodiversity loss, it's water scarcity, and 
and its agriculture and whether we can feed a growing population mm-hmm. moving into the future. Um, and so that course really looks at um, how you know solving one can create trade-offs that make another of these issues worse. You know the course is founded around this idea that you have to look at these in multi-dimensional ways, mm-hmm. um, different uh, disciplines, and so we have the scientific expertise, the political science and economic expertise, hmm. um, someone who's an ethicist and someone who really specializes in communication through mm. literature and the arts. And so, you know, that has framed the podcast because we're looking at not just one particular environmental issue and not just one particular framing of it, but how are people really across the country and across the world looking at this from whatever their professional or personal life is. Um, And and that's not the same for every single person. Yeah. I don't think I appreciated until we started this project how, as you say, improvements in one of these mm, categories could exacerbate the other. My area of expertise as a geoscientist is in um, water issues, and you know, I'm a geoscientist, so often that's over million-year timescales, mm-hmm. but there are lessons that we can learn for today. And um, so, you know, one of the biggest uses of water is for agriculture, mm-hmm. and not just like, oh, it, everything is almost equal, but this one's a little bit bigger. 75% or so of the water that we use in this country goes to irrigation. Huh. Um, And so that's a a huge amount. And so what that means is that any change in our agricultural system changes what our water needs are. Uh Um, And that there can be incredibly perverse incentives. So, you know, almonds uh, are an incredibly water intensive crop, Mm -hmm. but they're also valuable. And so um, there are farmers in California who are digging up um, crops that are better able to deal with water scarcity and planting almond Almonds, trees, yeah. which will make agricultural feeding people easier mm-hmm. because people want almonds mm-hmm. or almond milk, but it will make the you know needs for water um, much more acute mm-hmm. um, in a in a dry area. Yeah, yeah, a drought prone area. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly, or an area of chronic drought at that. Yeah, exactly, very interesting. Um, so, and in, in, you know, you can maybe solve water scarcity through desalination plants, mm-hmm. but those take energy, mm-hmm. and so now you bring in the climate issue. And um, oh, by the way, we're not the only ones who need water. Mm-hmm. Our ecosystems need water as well. And Mm -hmm. so um, there you have a good encapsulation of the intersections of all four of these issues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the other things that has come up a lot, I think, in the podcast across a lot of the different conversations you've had is the role of of working at scale or the importance of working at scale. And and you can parse this in a number of different ways. But right. I think a lot of us, and this is, a, this is a great thing, a lot of us have made great strides in trying to um, be more sustainable on a personal level, but I think your point is, and the point of this environmental nexus framing is that it's much bigger. And um, what more can you say about that? It's much bigger. Um, 
But it's interesting because we're talking in, um, in in All for Earth in the same format as this, right, mm-hmm. which is one-on-one conversations. And so on the one hand, it's bigger, but at the same time, the interviews are very intimate because mm-hmm. it's real people who are involved in trying to address these issues. Um, so, you know, among the things that surprised me in these interviews, um, one is how important it is to get that partnerships at scale. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we have someone in sustainable agriculture working for the Environmental Defense Fund, a woman named Susie Friedman. um, And and she's working not with the small organic farmers, Mm -hmm. um, family farms, but this is the huge commodity crops Mm -hmm. that they're dealing with. With Soybean, corn. Soybean, corn, wheat. Mm -hmm. um, Those are the kind of the Mm -hmm. three biggies. And the argument is that, you know, it's important, particularly for fruits and vegetables to have these smaller farms. Mm -hmm. But if you want to make a widespread impact on the agricultural system in this country and in the world, you have to deal with the big players. Um, And the issues that are at play there in the agricultural system, just to drill a little bit into that one conversation, are what exactly? I mean, they're, they're in part Use of water, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, certainly in places like California, as you just mentioned, there's developing crops that are going to be more robust in a climate change resilient, environment. Yeah. Yeah, resilient, thank you. Yeah. But other things too, right? Well, so that's one aspect of um, agriculture interacting with our weather and climate systems mm-hmm. is, you know, how do you have a, a system that's resilient to the climate mm-hmm. that is now and in the future? Yeah. But also, you know, the other aspect of that would be how do you have a system that does that has a lighter footprint mm-hmm. on the climate? Because, you know, our farming systems use nitrogen fertilizers, which can become right. nitrogen, nitrous oxide gases that, you know, are, are greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's that aspect. There's water pollution because that fertilizer can run off into our stream systems and Ultimately, you know, those chemicals end up in places like the Gulf of Mexico or Chesapeake Bay, and you have dead zones for eutrophication. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's an aspect. Um, and probably the, the third component of sustainable agriculture would be habitat, mm-hmm. um, because often when you're clearing an area for new farmland, mm-hmm. you are impacting the native habitat, Mm -hmm. um, either destroying it completely or decreasing it or somehow impacting it. Um, And so we talked a little bit about, with Susie, um, monarch butterfly habitat, um, which I've personally found fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. Because some of these things are win-win. You know, if a farmer becomes more efficient with their fertilizer, then there's less pollution and they spend less money because Mm -hmm. they're not using excess materials. Mm -hmm. Um, With habitat, you, it, it's hard to imagine it being win-win from a financial bottom line. But um, emotionally, farmers have grown up with monarch butterflies. Yeah. And so they have this deep personal connection. And so it's win-win in the sense that they're um, helping to preserve through planting milkweed in the interstitial areas between their fields. Yeah. Um, they're they're helping to preserve monarch butterflies, which they care deeply about, and obviously it's beneficial yeah. to the uh, ecosystem. And I'm guessing milkweed is is important to the habitat of the monarch butterfly. It, very important. Yeah. Interesting. So the other thing you touched on was how the podcast is crossing from scientists to politicians to 
uh, policy people and so on and so forth, uh, to athletes and you know people in the humanities and so on. I'm really struck by that. And I think it's another area that I'm, I wasn't completely as wide open-eyed about as I am now, how people across the spectrum are both mobilizing and, and, and are profoundly needed. Why, for example, do we care whether humanists are all clued up on uh, environmental issues? What, what, what's the role of a humanist? We can see why yeah. scientists matter, right? I mean, that's <laughs> well, yeah, and um, you know, so I forget now who who said this to me, but they were observing that you know scientists can really capture your head, the intellectual aspect, but you need the humanist to capture the heart. And mm -hmm. in order to make progress on environmental issues, it's not enough to just know the facts and figures. You actually have to capture people's emotion to mobilize them. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, as a, as a geoscientist, I love studying rocks because they don't talk back and they're not <laughs> animate. Um, Pet rocks. And, uh, <laughs> that, that moment, we might be, need to bring those back. Right. <laughs> um, it, so, you know, we really need people with expertise on how to capture the emotions and the psychology of the everyday person in mm -hmm. order to actually make um, considerable progress on environmental issues. Mm -hmm. And so that is not just journalists, but novelists and artists and documentary filmmakers oh, yes, you know, yes. so we interviewed um, Katie Carpenter who's mm -hmm. a producer of documentary films mm -hmm. and she spoke all about you know the importance of trying to communicate effectively um, and it is mm -hmm. about you know capturing the emotions not just the data yeah and she talked about that I, I thought in a very interesting way something dear to my heart because I've made documentaries in the past as well how do you frame something so that you do tug at the heartstrings of your listeners or, or, or viewers in her case without distorting the actual science and fact-based um, information that is supporting it and how how sometimes you do have to skirt a, a knife edge on that right right but you know really letting the storytelling be the driver mm -hmm. and not to be dishonest in the storytelling mm -hmm. but to find the narratives um, that will will have that hook for the viewer. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we talked about how that's particularly important when you're dealing with controversial subjects, mm -hmm. whether that's um, evolution or whether that's environmental issues, um, to, to really capture someone's attention so that they're invested in wanting to know the answer to whatever topic you, ha you happen to be addressing. Yeah, yeah. And she and another one of your guests, Fred Rich, uh, talked about the importance of storytelling and the importance of story structure uh, for uh, crossing the the uh, partisan divide as well. Right. And I wonder I, what tricks uh, tricks isn't the right word because it makes it sound kind of sneaky. <laughs> nefarious. But yeah, what what reframing in the minds of a scientist? Since you are a scientist, what reframing is useful to embrace in order to cross-partisan divides. Yeah, they, they both talked about the importance of having people be main players in the stories um, mm -hmm. because you can, um, you know, really fixate on the wildest areas of the world. And um, Katie talked about mm -hmm. the um, David Attenborough, Planet Earth style um, where, where people really are not 
you know, until until the recent um, ones, people weren't a big part of that. They were finding the yeah. rarest, the most remote places, the rarest species. Um, but but both Katie and Fred Rich talked about the importance of recognizing that um, environmental uh, efforts and environmental impacts really um, people should be a big part of that story. And any solutions, people have to be a part of that mm-hmm. story. And so, um, you know, Fred talks in his book, Getting to Green, about the um, – you know, mistakes that environmentalists have made when they propose solutions that ignore the pain that they will cause to the the populations that are impacted. Mm-hmm. And so um, he talks specifically about spotted owls in the Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. which was an issue in the 90s, mm-hmm. and that, you know, environmentalists, when they ignore that, um, loggers are going to be put out of business. They're mm. going to lose their jobs. Mm. You know, you do that at your peril because mm. you are going to lose that audience. You're going to lose those potential stakeholders as um, contributors to habitat preservation. Well, it makes me, I mean, flash flo- forward to to the very present day where we've got the, the Amazon jungle, Amazon rainforest burning right. before our eyes. And it's 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 been reported in the media quite a bit as sort of nefarious, um, I don't know, bad policy idea. But the truth of the matter is there there are really important livelihood issues at stake that perhaps we're not as sensitive to as we could be. That's right. And, um, you know, it's also very easy when we're in a different country with a different lifestyle to sort of say, Amazon, you should preserve mm-hmm. you should preserve the d- biodiversity in the Amazon because the world will be a better place. Yeah. Um, and it, it's easy to put that on a different yes, a different community, a different group of people. Um, but you know, to get buy-in, you have to engage the people who are there. And I think too that this is a case where um, humanities can really help us understand. Good storytelling can really help us understand a culture that is very different in a place that's you know further away. Absolutely, from you know anthropology, mm-hmm. sociology, um, political science. In addition to communicating and helping to move the needle, raise awareness, get people to do things in the great beyond about climate change and environmental issues, we have a generational obligation. I mean, interestingly, the podcast grew out of a course that that, that is aimed at undergraduates, yeah. 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, that that, that right. uh, age group. And that's not incidental. That's not just e- educating them, right? I'm, I'm, I'm teeing you up to to, <laughs> <laughs> to give a pitch. But I but I think that the a key theme that you've taught me is that this is a generation that is really going to get stuck holding the bag and we've got to give them the tools that we need, that they need, I mean, to solve it because it's their life uh, span that's going to see the worst of it come to fruition. It's not the right word. But <laughs> well, and, and that's right. I mean, I think that the... Um, people who are going to live further out into the future are going to obviously experience that future more directly. And so they have a great stake in that. That That is so critical in thinking about these uh, solutions. And, you know, aside from that, there <laughs> there's just a um, mentality that these are solvable issues mm-hmm. and that when you have new energy coming to the the table, um, I think that really mobilizes lots of people because the the youth are basically saying, you know, I don't accept that we can't change this. Yeah. We absolutely can. And, 
you know, that that's true across many different political issues that they're not weighed down by the baggage of previous failures. Yeah. They're coming at it with an urgency and uh, a personal stake. The tipping point in so many of these systems that we've been describing, food, climate, um, water, um, is going to happen in their lifetime. I mean, the point of no return could come in their lifetime. Am I, am I overstating that? Well, I, I wouldn't state it quite that way because a tipping point makes it seem like it's an on-off switch. Mm-hmm. You know, you flip the switch and at some point the lights come on or the lights go right. off and, you know, it's really a continuum. And so for something like climate change, the sooner we act, the less severe climate change will be. Um, there are a couple of thresholds that we have to worry about. One is coral reefs, um, bleaching of corals that seems to happen at a very narrow range of temperatures that in many places in the world we're approaching Mm -hmm. or sometimes exceeding. Mm -hmm. Um, And so among the people who are freaking out the most about climate change, um, coral biologists are are among them. Um, And the other, and this touches on my area of, of research, is um, the the boundary between what's snow and what's rain. Uh Because that impacts whether you have glaciers or whether you have rivers. And um, that loss of ice around the world, which... Uh, you know, impacts sea level rise, but it also impacts the local communities that rely on glacial meltwater for power, for drinking water, and so on. Um, you know, that that's a really profound yes. impact. Yeah. And, and I can see that in my research community, you know, going to professional meetings of glaciologists, the, the weight of that loss of ice is just <laughs> devastating for, for yeah. most of us. Yeah. And I don't want to dwell too much, but biodiversity is, is also, I mean, you know, once you're extinct, that's, a, uh, that's an off switch. <laughs> that's <laughs> an off switch, and, off and switch. that's actually, it, it is the most profound off switch because glaciers can regrow mm-hmm. and sea level can drop, mm-hmm. but you don't get that species back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that's the one um, thing. We talk about this in one of the um, intro climate classes I work on, that that's the the one thing that you can't directly undo. I think another big, su- not a big surprise, that's not the right way to phrase it, but I think another interesting framing that you've brought to my attention has to do with the importance of engaging um, uh, corporate America or and, and or entrepreneurial interests, but um, the business community, large and small. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how that's come up in your conversations and whether that's actually a surprise to you or, or how you're thinking about that? Sure. I mean, it it is, uh, I think, getting back to what we talked about with dealing with scale. You know, so, so the Environmental Defense Fund, um, we also talked, I talked with Carter Roberts, who's the head of the World Wildlife Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of those environmental groups are deliberately partnering with corporate America because, um, you know, they're recognizing that if you want to have a big impact, then, um, you know, one of the most immediate things you can do is tap into what people are buying at the store and um, tap into the supply chain of how you get either food or products from where they originate into the stores and yeah. ultimately into the consumers. Now, and when you say tap into, what do you mean? Do you mean kind of um, re-engineer it at a certain stage so that it's more sustainable? Or Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, they're looking for ways to lighten the footprint of companies like Walmart. Um, 
And so, you know, what what can World Wildlife Fund do to guide those corporations and then communicate out to the public mm-hmm. that, you know, these, communi- these um, corporations are taking their environmental stewardship seriously? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is it that it, how the materials are getting out of the ground and manufactured? Is there some um, place along the line, whether it's a particular factory or their transportation? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where is it that they can find win-win situations where it will cost the company less money, it will cost the environment mm-hmm. less, mm-hmm. Um, and therefore the consumer, the company, the environment all benefit. Benefit. Um, And so, you know, that um, actually surprised me because it has come up in unprompted in a number of different interviews. Um, The the two of them, um, Fred Rich talking about how to bridge the partisan divide. And um, one of his messages is don't demonize capitalism because the moment you do that, you will lose a good chunk of the right part of the political spectrum. Yeah, not to and mention a good toolkit. I mean, let's let's be honest. I mean, we we you know the tools of business are also need to be brought to the table. Right, and, and they're here. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, on the one hand, I um, personally applaud the idea that we're looking at existential threats, and therefore business as usual can't be right. your model. Those approaches, I think, are, are really interesting. Um, another person I haven't brought up is Marilyn Waite, who yeah. works in sustainable finance for the Hewlett Foundation. Um, and and she, likewise, is dealing with, you know, our financial systems as they exist, although trying to make them more environmentally friendly, um, using capital to open up bottlenecks in getting things like solar panels or other um green projects that, you know, just need the financing to make them happen. Yeah, she, she to me was a, a big surprise because she was on some level very reassuring. I mean, she, mm-hmm. she says we need, a, what, a, a trillion dollars annually in order to solve this, which sounds like a ton of money on the one hand. On the other hand, she says it's out there. It's, it's, it, we, we can mobilize. We just need to have the right tools or the right incentives um, right. That's right. to mobilize that capital. And that, for some reason, that struck me as very encouraging. I am not a financier by any stretch. But. Well, I mean, you you may be like me, which is once you start talking big numbers, mm-hmm. all the big numbers sound like big numbers. Yeah. <laughs> and so to be able to say we have $100 trillion, we need $1 trillion, mm-hmm. yeah. suddenly that becomes doable because you have some comparison. Right. Okay. We need 1% of the capital that we have going towards these green initiatives. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, uh, Catherine, I've noticed that you do tend to end most of your podcasts by turning to your guests and sort of saying um, something akin to, uh, you know, how bad is it? (laughs) (laughs) So after you've done this podcast series, which I should say is a limited series, it's, uh, it's, um, it's only 10 episodes. How bad is it? How bad have you figured out it is? It's bad. I'm going to echo Steve Pacala because, you know, you you and I worked on how do we introduce him and um, maybe we can have him say it's not that bad. And um, that was the one point that he pushed back and he said, no, 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 it's it's bad. Um, <laughs> but what I have um, become much more optimistic about is that there are very pragmatic solutions. Um, and there are a lot of people who are working on creating those solutions. Um, and the solutions are anything from 
you know, calculations that Steve and, and colleagues are working on to figure out, okay, you know, if we're going to go solar and wind, um, how much steel do we need and how many, you know, where are the power lines and going, getting down to that detail, is this doable? Um, but then there are people like um, Katie Carpenter or Claire Gallagher, who's an ultra marathoner out of Boulder, Colorado, who are really reaching out to the general public to say, look, you know, all of us should be invested and you can use your voice to enact change. And um, it is deeply heartening to me that those people are in a whole variety of roles across society trying to to create that positive change. And, you know, ultimately that's what we're trying to do at Princeton too. You know, the Council on Science and Technology is furthering scientific literacy so that we have our future leaders in business and politics and literature and so on who can be the voices for change grounded in some (laughs) real rigor about environmental science, or it might be vaccines, or it might be, you know, other issues, technology issues, um, but that, you know, we we have that expertise and that initiative yeah. in all aspects of our society. Yeah, that all disciplines or students in all disciplines need to understand some level of it so that they take it with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and yeah. and since we're citizens of the world, mm-hmm. we all have a stake in that. And yeah. so um, it, it's not acceptable to say, well, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I can't weigh in on that issue. We're being asked to weigh in on it by the choices that we make at the grocery store, by the, um, you know, choices we make at the ballot box, um, by just how we decide to live our day-to-day lives, um, our investments, and and so on, um, that, you know, we can't just wash our hands of it and say it doesn't it doesn't affect me, yeah. and we don't, and I don't affect it. And no, we're we're in this all together. Yeah. So, hence, all for Earth. Yes, <laughs> very good. Thank you. With that, I will end because uh, I can't think of a better way to end. Yeah. Uh, Catherine Rihimaki, um, the host of All for Earth, a new podcast that you can get on all the usual podcast platforms, as well as an educator here at Princeton University. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. It was wonderful to be on this side of the microphone. Yeah, great. I'd like to also thank uh, Danielle Alio, who is our producer, and. Dan Kearns, who's our audio engineer, and ask uh, our listeners to come back soon for another interview with a uh, fascinating woman from Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications, with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.